Well, for quite a while now, we've been in this series in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes entitled, Living Life in Perspective. Last week, we saw how that life is an adventure in faith, to be lived by faith, an adventure to be lived by faith. This week, we're going to see how life is a gift to be enjoyed and to be accounted for. To both be enjoyed and to be accounted for. Our scripture reading begins in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 7 through chapter 12, verse 8. We're getting very near. This is the the, uh, prelude to the final, to the climax, the grand finale. And these are highly picturesque words, descriptions of life and of the oncoming process that leads to death in this text this morning. So hear now with appreciation the word of the Lord from Ecclesiastes chapter 11 verse 7. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many, and all that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man. In your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth And the dawn of life are vanity. In that case, the word vanity is not meaninglessness, but temporariness, short-lived. Verse 1, chapter 12. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and the terrors are in the way, and the almond tree blossoms, and the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home. 
and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word abides forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it. Father, once again, we ask that in your light we will see light. We know that your truth is spiritually discerned, and we are not, Lord, capable of understanding and receiving your word in a way that will lead to profit, that will lead to, to a wiser life, well lived to your glory. Will you help us today? Will you show us your truth and change us by it that we might walk and honor you as our creator all the days of our life and in our death? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of the uh, reigning idolatries of our time is what we could call the cult of youth. Now, this is not a, a knock. This is not a slam on the young. But it's the idea that everybody wants to constantly be forever young. A whole industry, the plastic surgery industry, is built upon that. The quest to try and stay young. And the more and more people that, that do that, they don't realize they're causing consequences for the others who don't. <laughs> because they're looking a little bit younger for a while. It's only temporary. But then the rest of us uh, find ourselves looking uh, a little bit older by comparison. But this whole quest to try to forever be young, to believe and pretend that we will never really end up growing old. It's so resisted by us naturally. No matter what age we are, whatever young person age we are, whether we're in our, our teens or, or whether we're uh, in our 60s and we still see ourselves and think of ourselves as young, right? You realize that, don't you? That we don't, people just feel like they are, they feel Inside, they don't look at outside. They grow older outside, but they feel still like a child at heart inside. But so whatever your case is, upon reflection, this quest to be forever young, this wanting to, to hold up and somehow put at bay growing older, it was some ways well-defined in the 60s by the rock group The Who in their song, My Generation. Let me quote you a few lines. People try to push us down, talking about my generation, just because we get around, talking about my generation. Things they do look awful cold, talking about my generation. I hope I die before I get old, talking about my generation. You know what? I bet if we brought Roger Daltrey and uh, some of his mates uh, up here and ask them now, would they, would they like to die before they get old? Well, they already are, 
for one thing. And no, they're quite happy to still be here, uh, those that are. Uh, one of them went a long time ago, the drummer. But the point is, you see, that sentiment. We say such things in youth because we never believe that we're going to get older. Today, we're going to consider the next to the final section of the book that leads up to the grand finale, as I said. And here's how we could summarize the content. Basically, in this statement, all our joy and activity should be tempered by the realities of death and our accountability to our creator. Let me say that again. All our joy and activity should be tempered, influenced, shaped by the realities of death and our accountability to our creator, God. Reference my title. Enjoy yourself, but don't forget. Don't forget to whom you owe your life and your very breath. So today's outline, so twofold, very simple. The command to rejoice and the call to remember. The command to rejoice and the call to remember. Let's look at the command to rejoice first. Now, this is the sixth time. Let's see if I can get there right. Yeah, yeah. I'm not very good counting with my fingers. Um, (laughs) The sixth time and the final time that joy, rejoicing in God's good gifts and in his goodness to us on planet Earth is something that is mentioned now the sixth time. We are called to accept life as a gift and learn to enjoy all that God shares and gives to us. And we're to do it, though, with an eye toward the future. Because another reality is coming. Day will come when we will not be able to enjoy those things as much. Now, in verses 7 through 10, again, a lot of picture language is used. Talking about the, the sunshine of our lives, basically. In verses 7 through 10. These verses tell us that God desires us to be a people of joy and gladness. That's what he wants for his people. Interestingly, the youth described in this passage is a relative concept. I've already told you that. You know, what is, what is young? Uh, it's not talking about a age specific. It doesn't define it and say the person that is below this age, now listen up. No, he's saying youth, those in their youth, In other words, basically, those that have still got enough strength to grasp hold of God's goodness and enjoy it, do it. That's the point. That's how youth is being defined in a broad sense. It's not defined by an age number, but it's a call to grab hold of life with both hands and enjoy it while the opportunity still exists. Okay? Now, Did you notice that there were four commands, four imperatives, four calls for something specific in those verses that I read? There are four specific commands or imperatives to enjoy, to enjoyment, to rejoicing. Four times we get that directive through the teacher, or through Solomon, but it's coming from God. Is God really interested in that? 
for us? Is he really that interested in our joy? In our, if you want to say it, happiness? Although joy is much deeper, happiness is usually more affected easily by temporal circumstances. But if you, whatever way you want to think, is God really concerned for that? Well, the simple answer is yes, he is. Let me show you how. Now, by the way, in verse 8, where it says basically, you know, follow your eyes and do whatever you want to do. No, come on. The rest of the Bible, remember, we're, we're just looking at part of it, not the whole thing. The rest of it makes it very clear we're to enjoy that within the boundaries of what he's given for us to enjoy. Some things are off limits for our own good and welfare. But, of course he's not recommending licentious living and giving into our sinful desires at every turn. Verse 9 is an invitation to the joys of God within God's prescribed boundaries. I love those uh, commercials. You see them all the time in, in uh, a, a bunch of different products being sold in, on television. Um, but you see the, one of them, and uh, it's, a, it's a, obviously it's a beer or, or alcohol commercial. And at the end of it, it says what? Drink responsibly. Well, what the teacher is saying to us today is enjoy responsibly. Enjoy what God has given you, but do so responsibly with an eye toward your creator to whom you and I will give an account of how we have used the resources and the gifts that he has given us to enjoy. Now, perhaps you also noticed in verse 9b, look again at verse 9 be there if we flip back at the second part it says walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes but know that all of these things god will bring into judgment Hmm, it's pretty ominous isn't it is the point here be careful god is watching if you step out of line is that, is that the idea? Well, we do know there is going to be a final judgment and an accounting. Jesus told us that very clearly. There is going to be a day in which all things will be reckoned and all accounts will be settled by the judge of all the earth. And he will do right. But in context, I don't believe that's the point. This is not talking about the final judgment day per se. Is the point here, I believe here, there's another way to understand the idea of judgment in its context. What if, now follow me, follow, what if God is including our enjoyment, our enjoyment of his world, or the lack of it, if we're not doing what he's telling us, commanding us to do, what if he sees that as one of the things that he will call us into account for at the day of reckoning. In other words, if we are failing to enjoy as we have been directed, what if that's one of the things that God is going to be very displeased with and going to judge in that sense? What if that's what is being said here? The truth is, 
Enjoyment is not only permitted, folks, it is commanded. It's not only an opportunity, it's a divine imperative. Our failure to enjoy life is an offense to God's goodness and giving heart. Not merely an oversight by you and me. Do you understand that? If you don't live a joyful Christian life, that is an affront to your creator and to your redeemer. You know, why Why is it the church is so beaten down, so marginalized, cast off as irrelevant? You know, it could be that many cases it is because sound theology has been lost. And the gospel has been given up and given away. Many times that is the case. But you know, I wonder if just just might be. And there, I've, I've read several treatises on this and, and articles. What if the church truly were a more joyful place? What if it overflowed with abundant joy of the Holy Spirit? The second gift of the Spirit. What if our churches, when people walked in, they found these people, I don't know what they got, but they, they, they know a joy that's deeper and there's nothing that seems to be able to take it away, come what may. What would be the church's witness then? I think that's why God calls for it. To live that kind of fully alive life that I was talking about last week. And this is just another aspect of that. Listen to this very interesting verse. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 47. Not a place you might expect to find this. And by the way, the context here is God is, based, is saying to his people, all right, I brought you in. Look at what I gave you. Look at all I did. I came, made you to come and have a land flowing with milk and honey and wine to enjoy and to be with me and to fellowship. And you have thrown it all away. You've not honored me, and so you're going to be judged. Now listen to what he says. Because, here's the reason why. You did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. He didn't say, you did not serve the Lord your God with sternness and seriousness. And tell him, go to church or the devil's going to get you. He didn't say that. He said, you didn't serve me with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Look at what I've done for you. Look at what I've given you. And you didn't enjoy it. You didn't use it responsibly. No, that's not a divine typo. You want to say, wait a minute, are you sure that's in the Bible? That when you see things like that, doesn't it kind of go against the grain of what we think? Is that not how most of the world, and truth be told, most of us think about God? He's, he's kind of holding everything close and kind of begrudgingly giving out gifts and good things. That's not what this verse pictures and paints. Listen to C.S. Lewis in writing uh, 
here in the screw tape letters. And again, if you know, don't know the story of that, it's one demon, a senior demon, schooling a younger demon on how to get us Christians entrapped and get us off track in following the Lord. And so this is his take on how he sees God. Now listen to the language that he uses. He, meaning God, this is screw tape, saying to his nephew Wormwood, he is a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade. Out at sea, out in his sea, there's pleasure and more pleasure. He has a bourgeois mind, hedonistic mind. He has filled the world full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long. With him not minding in the least. Is that the kind of God you think occupies the throne of the universe? Scriptures seem to depict that. But isn't that strange to us? You see, to not live gladly and joyfully and drink deeply of God's provisions is a sin because it is a very denial of who he is and the greatness of his loving heart. Of a good and gracious king. The one who is a good, good father as we sing. The one who, in his son, who tells us, you want to know the father? Study me, Jesus said to his disciples. You want to know what the father's like? The son has revealed him. And that son said in John 10, 10, what? I came that you might have life. And I want you to keep it tamped down. And I want you to not let it show. I don't want you to let it glow. I don't want you to let it out. And remember You're not going to get much of it. No, he said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. I came that you might be a human being fully alive to my father's glory. That's why I'm here. I came to set you free. I came to bring you joy. That's why Paul in 1 Timothy said, speaking In that verse, and he's talking about doctrines of demons. He's talking about serious stuff. He must be talking about occultic stuff. No, you know what he's talking about? Those that forbid marriage and things that are to be enjoyed that God gave. And so he says in verse 3 of chapter 4, 1 Timothy, those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and there is nothing to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. I don't know, that's a different God being depicted there than what we instinctively think and what the world goes around saying. They think he's a killjoy. They think he's a party pooper. You see, my friends, the truth is, the truth is, God only withholds from us the things that will leave us broken, 
exhausted. He only withholds things that will leave us with guilt and with sorrow and with regret instead of joy. Do you understand that? Do I understand that? Do we really believe that? You see, that's the rub. We have a hard time believing that, don't we? We have a hard time really believing that. Well, there's a second thing here. There's a call to remember. There is a command to rejoice. I hope you got that down. And by the way, you can go out and practice today. Not yet, but you're free to practice. Responsibly. (laughs) What about the call to remember? That's found basically in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 12. And again, a lot of metaphorical language. I'm not going to explain the grinders. Some of this stuff is pretty easy to figure out, but it's just talking about when everything shuts down in old age. We are called to remember to live for our creator before death overtakes us because the day will come in which we cannot do what we are called to do as well Verse 1, the teacher tells younger people to remember their creator, not God. Did you notice that? Why did it say, remember God, young people, whatever age you are? Remember God. No, it doesn't say that. It says particularly here, your creator. Why? Because the doctrine of creation is so essential to so many things. And when you get that wrong, when you start it off wrong, and you don't understand who's the creator and what he did and what he didn't do, you will get so many other things wrong. That's why we don't know who we are anymore. That's why we're confused about our identity. Sexually and otherwise, because we don't know who is the creator. We don't believe in him and his goodness. We think he's somehow holding about. See, creation is so essential to so many things in life that we understand and know that he is the creator. The word remember means to recall. Not just, oh yeah, I didn't forget him. Oh yeah, God, hey, I thought about you today. No, it means to recall, to realize that the creator made this world good and not evil. It is we that have messed it up. We are the ones that have turned it into a spoiled wilderness. We have spoiled God's good creation. But that's what he made. And that's what he promises one day in the new creation to remake good again. Also, remembering God as creator means taking my place in the world as a creature. And not demanding the prerogatives of a creator. You know what the prerogatives of a creator are? I think I'll just decide to be this today. I'll I'll make that. I will assure and guarantee this will be an outcome for me. Those are the prerogatives of a creator. They're not of mortal human beings, men and women and boys and girls. But, oh, we want them to be, don't we? We strive so hard. We try so hard to get the handle 
on being our own creators, definers of right and wrong, of who we are and how we're supposed to live and with whom we are to have relationships at whatever degrees and levels. Jacques Ellul made this statement. You may consider yourself autonomous. That's what we all like to think. I'm self-made. I decide. It's just sickening. Everywhere you go on everything, people trying to pretend that there's somehow this little bitty God that can just go around and define reality any way they, they want to. You may consider yourself autonomous, but you are incapable of knowing what is to be done. Incapable of knowing what wisdom is. You are a creature. He's basically saying, get a grip with, on it. Face the fact. Our problems do not stem from our failure to stay in our garden. All the evils, I choose my words carefully, listen, all the evils of the world stem from our taking ourselves to be the creator. Need to be the creators with the prerogatives to control the world. And if God doesn't cooperate with that, we get mad at him or we dismiss him or we pout or we become disillusioned and angry. Do you understand? Do we understand that most of our anxiety comes from our failed attempts to be that little creator? Most of the things that frustrate you and that create so much of the angst and anxiety in your life and mine are when we're trying to play God. We're trying to play creator, trying to set the terms, define things so that everything will work out according to our plan. So that we will get what we want, deserve, as we see it in our mind. Now the text goes on. And it talks about the evil days. And it spends a good bit of time depicting and painting very vivid image of those evil days. Meaning the days that are result in our death. Old advancing age and the last time of our life. The evil days refer to difficult days that come from the natural process of aging in which our bodies begin to wear out. As I said, very poetic imagery. Uh, they depict a process, aging process of failing light. And then they depict a process of a dilapidated old house. And they say this house has got all this, these things in it. And these are all the things that start happening. You know, your, your limbs start failing. Your eyes start failing. Your hearing starts failing. All of these things are being vividly portrayed. And then in verse 7 comes the end of mortal man. There it's depicted. Remember what God said to Adam after the fall? For you, for dust you are, and to what? Dust you will return. Dust you are, and to dust you will return. Genesis 3.19. Some of you may have seen years ago, now, a movie by the name of Meet Joe Black with Brad Pitt 
and Sir Anthony Hopkins is the principal characters. And Bill Hopkins is dying. He's in this state. He's already having the signs. And he starts hearing a voice. Yes. He goes, yes, what? What? Yes. Yes to what? Ultimately, the voice tells him, do you remember? And he just gives a litany of the things he's been experiencing. And at the end of that, he says, am I going to die? That's been the answer to the question that he wasn't admitting but was going on all the time and being asked a thousand ways. At that point, the personification of death, Joe Black, steps out from the shadows in person and smiles at him and says, yes, you are going to die. Now, it's an interesting story of how the interplay uh, and there's some very humorous things in there as well. But you see, That's death being depicted, coming. God gave us life. God will take it again in his own time. In his only divinely appointed way. But here's the thing you need to know today. Say, well, Joe, there you go. Cheering us up again. You got us going about being happy. Now you just poured water all over us and extinguished any flame that there would have been. No. Because of something that happened 2,000 years ago, death's a whole new ball game. Oh, it's still coming for you and me. But it's a whole new ball game. You see, the world... Those who do not know God and do not know what he has done for us in Jesus Christ and have not trusted in him, they do not know. Death is anything but a shroud, a covering blanket of darkness that extinguishes all light. That's all they know it as. But believers in Christ, and because of what he has done, we can Allow death to shape us, not shroud us. It can actually be an influence, and that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to say here. Our certain death, he says, should invigorate our current life, should make you want to be the best Christian hedonist you can be, as John Piper says. The fact that we know death is coming should make us all the more carpe diem. Seize the day. It should cause us, folks, listen. If we really understand the gospel, and if we know what God has done in Christ, it should cause us to live with one foot in the grave, knowing that we're going to die, and the other foot on the dance floor. One foot in the grave and one foot on the dance floor. I don't know about you, but that's the way I want to go out. I want to still be trying to put that one foot on the dance floor. And believe me, I thought I might have gone out recently at, a, uh, at Maddie Kelly uh, uh, 
the uh, thing with uh, Elton John night, I, I, I got out there and I thought after a few dances, I thought, I thought well, Lord, I guess now's a good time as any. I, was, I wasn't sure I was going to make it, but I was trying to, trying to put, that to, put a little feet to that, literally. But you see, you see what the difference it makes? Do you see it's not a shroud for us? It's a shaping influence that can motivate us to do more with what God has given us, his good gifts, and to do more for the kingdom and for his cause and for his glory. But how can that be, you say? Joe, how can it be? How can something so ominous and dark and despairing be changed? I'll tell you how, my friends. Listen, listen to this. Isaiah 25, 6 through 8a. Long ago, God prophesied. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and aged wine well refined. That's talking about a party, folks. The dance floor with all the goodies to go with it. And he, he will swallow up on this mountain the covering, that word is shroud. The shroud that is cast over all peoples. Curse of sin and its penalty of death. And the veil that is spread over all nations. And he will swallow up death forever. He will swallow up death forever. That's how. That's how it's no longer a shroud. But a shaping influence for a life fully lived for the glory of God. You see, my friends, death thought on the cross. The death thought that it had swallowed up Jesus. But my friends, it was the other way around. Look who was eating who. This is foretelling that. It was the other way around. Death thought it had swallowed him, but it was... Jesus who swallowed death. I love the way him, his be the victor's name in the third verse depicts this. Listen to this language. He, meaning Jesus, he hell in hell laid low. He went to hell to lay low the power of hell. Made sin. Jesus was made sin for us. 1 Corinthians 5, 12. was made sin for us. He sin overthrew. He was made sin for us, and yet he overthrew sin. Bowed to the grave, destroyed it so, and death by dying slew. He slew death. He swallowed up death through his work on the cross, his perfect life of obedience, his perfect substitutionary death for unworthy sinners who believe in him. That's how, my friends. So let me ask you a question this morning. When it comes 
time for you, no matter what your age, to meet Joe Black. And you will meet him. When it comes time, will you be ready? Will you? In Jesus Christ, the gospel says you can't be. In Jesus Christ, and there only, you can't be. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Lord, thank you that you found a way to turn a, a shroud into a shaping influence for your glory. Thank you for swallowing up that which will one day swallow us. But just like we're going to be spit out like Jonah, Lord. Couldn't hold our Savior and it won't hold us. Praise be your name. Oh, glory to you, Lord. Thank you. Our Redeemer, our Creator. May we live more fully alive for you with joy until the day we have that great celebration, that ultimate feast with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.